the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. You were sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cut deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. We we had some technical difficulties here going on, and uh, I think we're going to be okay now. So uh, thanks for tuning into the program. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and you're listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. As you know by now, this is a radio program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, questions about what we believe as Christians, why we believe it, questions about some of the things going on in your life, maybe some doctrinal questions or people questions. Whatever you've got, we'll do the best that we can to answer. Our phone number for your live calls and questions is 340-9585. That's 340-9585 for your live calls. Uh, you can also call us toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. Uh, that is uh, our website, um, uh, questions at calvarysa.com. You can send them in via our free mobile app. Uh, additionally, if you are driving in your car, the best way to call safest way to call is to use the KSLR free mobile app. Because it's Tuesday, we don't have a lot uh, to talk about in terms of what's going on here. So let me just invite you all, men and women alike, 
uh, to tune to uh, uh, our website, calvarysa.com, and please listen to Lisa Stevens' Sweet Summer Devotion from last night. It was one of those times when something was very special was happening in the room. Uh, God was doing something uh, through uh, a wonderful servant of God, uh, a very shy woman who bared her heart. And uh, I was so moved today. I was so proud of Lisa. Um, but do yourself a favor and listen to Lisa Stevens' Sweet Summer Devotion from last night. That's pretty easy to find. Okay, let's get right to questions now. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is our first question today, and it comes from uh, Anonymous from our mobile app. Uh, When Jesus performed miracles, did he do it through the power of the Holy Spirit or with his own power as God? Wonderful question, Anonymous. He did it in the power of the Holy Spirit. Whatever he did, whatever he said, uh, whose ever life he touched, all was done in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now remember, according to Philippians chapter 2, he emptied himself of God. He didn't stop being God, but he submitted to the, the headship of his father. He said, I only say what I hear my father say. I only do what I see my father do. And all of this began in earnest when the the Holy Spirit descended on him in the form of a dove at his baptism. So it's a very important question. And and the reason, if Jesus would have done all those things as as God himself, just, just using his own power as God, then he would have left us no model to follow. And in exactly the same way that Jesus was led every single day by the Holy Spirit and every single day his power is what was manifest through Jesus. That's the way that we're to live. So, Anonymous, you and I have that same power. Now, Jesus was given the Spirit without measure because he had no sin nature. We have a sin nature, and so we're always fighting that struggle, battling the flesh. But that same power, the power that raised Christ from the dead, lives in each and every one of us. And while we don't have that perfect connection with God the Father that Jesus had, we, too, can do everything that he asks us to do, not by might or by power, but by his spirit, we're told, in the prophecy of Zechariah. So his miracles were done through the power of the Holy Spirit. I hope that answers your question. It's a, I haven't had that question. I love it. Zero ninety-five eighty-five of your live calls. Here is a question from James uh, from our email inbox. Uh, James says, if one claims to be a Reformed Christian slash Calvinist, are they really saved? How can someone how can someone have a messed up perspective of our Lord and also have a true relationship with him? Uh, James, the reason, to answer the second question, someone can have a messed up relationship or messed up perspective of Jesus and still have a true relationship with him because of grace. There's going to be a lot of people in heaven whose doctrine isn't perfect. A lot of people who who mess up people that don't understand the Lord. Now, before getting into the Calvinist uh, Reformed argument, let me say this. James, too many of us who are not Reformed, who are not Calvinists, uh, we misrepresent Jesus all the time with our lack of love. Uh, we have a messed up perspective of our Lord, and we have a true relationship with him. So what one believes, while vital, while it's important, what we believe 
We are a reflection of what we believe. What we believe isn't necessarily going to determine whether or not a relationship with Jesus is real. If you believe that he is the Son of God, as we like to say, also God the Son. He was God in human flesh. If you believe that he died for your sins, if you ask him to come into your heart and have a begin relationship with him, then you're saved. Your relationship with him, while continuing to grow, I hope, it's still a relationship, even though some of your doctrine is wrong and some of your perspectives are wrong. Uh, Reformed Christianity, Calvinism, uh, if you prefer the, the, the title, is one of the historical branches of the Christian church. It always has been. When I say always has been, as church history progressed, uh, a Reformed theology uh, has been very, very prominent in much of the world uh, for much of the time. Uh, While I believe that Calvinists or Reformed uh, theologians are really wrong, and I believe with all of my heart, James, that they're missing out on that the passion and the relationship with God, their relationship is, is sort of intellectual uh, rather than spiritual or passionate. Uh, I, I believe that they have a kind of a hold on the truth, but at the same time, they, um, they, they don't really have a hold of who Jesus is, uh, but they're saved. They acknowledge all of the essentials of the historic Christian faith, Uh, Again, I want to emphasize, while I think they are really, really wrong, they are our brothers and sisters in the Lord. So pray for them. Pray for them. Thank you, James. I appreciate it very, very much. 340-9585. Let's go to Ravar calling on line one. Ravar, good to hear from you again. You're on the radio. Hi, Pastor. Hope you're doing well. Doing well. Thank you. Awesome. Uh, I just had a question. So I was trying to understand, based on going through Genesis, and I read through the chapter where uh, Abraham, as Abram, basically went down to Egypt during, uh, due to the drought. And from what I understand, uh, it's considered that was considered one of like instances of Abraham, Abraham being disobedient to God. But I didn't really see the element of why it was disobedient because he didn't like confer with God first before he went there and not rely on him to get him out the drought or you know, was it some other source because of his, his attitude or heart as he, you know, had a plan to basically pull the Egyptians because later on with his descendants, you know, Joseph has everyone saved from drought yet again by having them all come to Egypt. So I just wanted to figure out how, if Abraham was being disobedient by going up to Egypt, why was it? Okay. I can do that. Thank you, Rivar. appreciate the question. Uh, a couple of things. One, Abraham was disobedient since only that he didn't ask God what to do. He sort of took matters in his own hand. And when he was faced with a famine, uh, if, if you're faced with a famine, um, you go get another job. And a lot of times circumstances dictate what we do instead of the word of God or God speaking to our hearts dictates what we do. And this is a point where we all have to get in that moment of fear. Are we going to seek God? Are we going to take matters into our own hands and do what seems right to us? And Abraham was doing what seemed right to him. Uh, There's food in Egypt, there's grain there, but there's no food here. Uh, So I'm going to go, I've got a family to take care of. But, But it was his weak faith 
that sent him to Egypt. There were enormous consequences, of course, we'll remember from that trip to Egypt, Ravar. Uh, uh, he returned with, with a, a slave named Hagar, uh, through whom he had a child that was not uh, a child of or in the will of God, uh, a child that two nations would come from, and, um, and, and the world is still paying the price of that decision. So there's consequences when we make decisions that um, don't take God's perspective or his point of view uh, into account. And Abraham, a friend of God, Abraham, who, who believed God and it was counted him as righteousness, he had that moment where he just did what seemed right to him. And it cost him dearly. It's cost the world dearly in the process. So, yeah, he was disobedient, but it wasn't a willful disobedience. It was just a decision that he made in a moment of weak faith. Now, the, the, the important thing for us, we're, we're thousands of years from that incident. The important thing for us is to remember that the best way for us to avoid the consequences of bad choices is to make sure that God is the one who's directing our steps. And I think sometimes we we get in trouble and we do what seems right to us and we find out it wasn't the will of God and we have terrible consequences as a result. So, yeah, Abraham was disobedient, but again, it wasn't a willful disobedience. It's very important. Now, Joseph, on the other hand, uh, this is a great example, by the way, of, of uh, Romans 8.28. God works all things together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. Behind the scenes, God was doing all of these things. And Joseph, you remember, he didn't go to Egypt on his own volition. He went because he was sold as a slave by his brothers who at first were going to kill him and then said, no, we won't kill him. We'll at least make some money and sell him uh, to, to, to the traveling slave traders. Uh, and he ended up there, and God was with him, and God blessed him. And God would later save the entire um, very small group of, of, of Hebrews, uh, 70 or in all, uh, and, and he would bring them to where they could be preserved. And they would end up being preserved in Egypt, as you know, for 400 years uh, until they were set free uh, when God heard their cries and sent Moses to deliver them. So God is always at work. He's at work, thankfully, even in those uh, situations where we don't um, pay attention to him, where we don't seek his counsel. So I hope that answers your question, Ravar. I appreciate it very, very much. The important thing for all of us is to remember when you have a decision to make, open your Bible, consult God in prayer, and let him direct your steps because that's the only way to avoid the consequences of our weak faith or uh, the consequences of our bad decisions. So I hope that helps. Thanks, Rivar. I appreciate it. Uh, and it was good hearing from you again. Here is a question from our mobile app from Nacho. Uh, he says, Second Chronicles chapter 8, verse 11, What was Solomon, Solomon's motivation in moving his Egyptian wife from Jerusalem to another city? If she was his wife, wasn't she Jewish by being one flesh with Solomon, a similar, similar to Ruth was to Boaz? Or was she actively worshipping her gods as a practice we know many of Solomon's wives followed? A couple of things here, Nacho, on this. This is a, 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 a big step in Solomon's demise here. This was the very first of his foreign wives. We know he had a thousand women in his life. This was the very first. Uh, an Egyptian wife was given to 
Queen, uh, the daughter of a, of a pharaoh, uh, given to him for the for for sort of as a peace offering. And, um, you know, I don't know what Solomon was thinking. We, we know he shouldn't have done that. You can't multiply wives or he shouldn't multiply wives. God had told him that. But he did it anyway. And when he moved her to out of the out of the palace, he's basically acknowledging that this woman is a pagan. She has nothing to do with God. Not only does she have nothing to do with his God, but she can't be around the things that are attentive to the worship of God. So he gave her another place. And basically what he's saying is, Last up, I shouldn't have married this woman, uh, but eventually he kept doing it over and over and over, and his foreign wives led him astray. It's only to read the book of Ecclesiastes uh, to find out how far he fell. Now, there's one other thing that I want to point out here, Nacho, and this is important for, for all of our listeners. When we're reading the Old Testament, we have to be careful not to apply too much New Testament doctrine into it. Their relationship with God was far different than ours, so there was no concept of one flesh. The two shall be one, that was the way it was in the Garden of Eden. However, in the Garden of Eden, there was no sin yet. That's how God created them. Well, now that we have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus, now that the Holy Spirit lives in us, then we are also one flesh when we marry. But certainly that wasn't the case in the ancient world wasn't the case uh, in the Old Testament construct. So um, be careful about um, culturalizing, westernizing, or even New Testamentizing the Old Testament stories. Read what they are, and in this particular case, this was when Solomon began to fall. God is patient. He didn't fall all at once, but he sure could have. So thank you very much, Nacho. I appreciate the question. Here is a question from Rich from our email inbox. Is the gift of tongues in operation today? And if so, what is the proper way for this gift to be exercised? Rich, the answer is yes, but not in the same way it was on the day of Pentecost. Now here's what we've got to understand, and this is where context matters a bunch. On the day that you were born, when when everybody spoke in a, a foreign tongue, uh, what they spoke was understood. It was a, definitely a language or a dialect that was unknown to the speakers. This was a sovereign move of God. It was accompanied not just with the, the, the gift of tongues, but accompanied by uh, the sound of a mighty rushing wind and cloven tongues of fire that rested upon the heads of the people in the upper room. And this was sort of a grand entrance, the Holy Spirit fulfilling the promise of Jesus. It's good for you that if I, that I go away, because if I go, I will send another just like me to be with you, the promised Holy Spirit. So in this particular incident, in Acts chapter 2, this is not a normative experience. This isn't something that is ever going to be repeated again. Uh, when you find New Testament churches that say, um, you know, we're going to have everybody speak in tongues, we're going to have the sound of a mighty rushing wind, um, you know, that's silliness. It's, it's charismatic silliness uh, because this was a one-time-only event. Now, having said that, the gift of tongues was a gift that was given then and is still given now but it's given to individuals. That's what we really need to understand. So the gift of tongues is given to individuals and not to huge groups of people. So when God gives you the tongues, your question is, what's the proper way for the gift to be exercised? I like the 
choice of words you used, Rich, exercised. Because we need to exercise. When we are given a gift by God, we have to kind of grow into that gift. And the gift of tongues in particular, because it seems so nonsensical, and because most of the time we're not given the gift of interpretation with that gift of tongues, uh, we're really exercising great faith. So the way the gift of tongues should be utilized today is by individuals. Paul says in writing to the church at Corinth that this is a vertical gift. It's a gift between the user and the Lord who gives the gift. And its purpose is to edify our relationship, to strengthen our relationship with God. It's not something that we're supposed to do with other people, around other people. It is simply the gift that we use. Sometimes when we don't know what to pray for, we can use the gift of tongues. Uh, sometimes, uh, I, and I'll be very personal on this, I've had the sense that I'm, I'm interceding for others. Uh, today was one of those examples while I was exercising. Uh, I, I was compelled to pray in tongues, and by that I don't mean I didn't have a choice. I, we always have a choice. But, but I, I felt that, that uh, I needed to pray in my prayer language. And uh, in this particular case, I, I felt like it was a prayer that God wanted to say yes to. I still don't know what I prayed. But God does, and I have enough faith and enough patience to wait to find out what it was, if in fact it's something that's going to affect me. So it's a very valuable gift. It's the only gift that is, is only to edify us and others. So that's how it's to be used. One more step here, Rich, and I think this is equally important. Uh, the way it's to be used in the church matters so much because it's so abused. In a church assembly, this is straight out of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul says, when tongues is spoken in church, two or three at the most, and always with an interpretation, if there is no interpretation, then there should be no more tongues. We're to exercise control. We're to exercise order in the in in the gathered together body, and the way we do that is to follow the rules established by the Holy Spirit. So when you uh, walk into a church where everybody's praying in tongues at once, you are walking into a church that is out of order. That's not, not the spirit of God in control. That's the carnal nature of man in control, and it's a church that's out of order. So uh, in a church setting. Now, Rich, you bring this up a week from this coming Friday. We will be having here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio uh, what we call an afterglow. It is a, a Friday night service that we do when we finish one book before we go to the next book. Um, um, uh, just it's a time for the body to minister to itself. And it is possible um, that we'll speak in a tongue. Uh, if that happens, when I'm moderating the, the night, I will say to... Uh, on the microphone, say, let's just sit and be quiet for a moment and wait for an interpretation. I always know there are people in the church with the gift of interpretation. And if there's no interpretation, then we all say, okay, there's no interpretation, so we'll have no more tongues tonight. If there is an interpretation, it typically edifies somebody or speaks directly to somebody's heart. We get that interpretation, and then there may be another or two other um, incidents where somebody's speaking in tongues happens, uh, though it's always awkward for somebody to get up in front of people and speak in, in, in a prayer language is always awkward. Uh, it's always beautiful. And it's something that, that edifies greatly. Uh, and the interpretation without fail every time has spoken to uh, some 
symbolic at a very, very deep level in our church. So that's what we've got coming up a week from Friday night. Uh, but with interpretation is the only way, and two or three at the most. Um, the point is tongues primarily is that vertical gift between the user and God in such a way that that our relationship with him is strengthened. So yes, the gift of tongues is in operation today. Sadly, it is often uh, used um, in an out-of-control, sort of crazy way uh, in our church culture. So, uh, Rich, I hope that answers your question. Thanks very much. If you don't have the gift of tongues, um, you should want it. Paul says, I would that every one of you speak in tongues more than I do. This is a good gift. Why wouldn't anyone want a gift that God says will strengthen our relationship with him, that will increase our ability to worship him, to to have our prayers answered? So ask God for the gift. By faith, receive it. Every gift, just like salvation, every gift that God gives has to be received by faith. And once you understand that, you just, God, thank you for this gift. Paul said that he wishes everybody had it. I wish I had it, so please, Lord, give it to me. And then take some risks and see what the Lord will do. My final point on this before we come up to our break is those of you who have the gift of tongues, don't neglect it. Use it. Practice it. Take a walk with Jesus. You'll be blessed. Hey, the music is on. We've got 30 minutes left on the Tuesday edition program. Sorry for the problems right at the top of the of the hour, but we got it all straightened out now. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. We'll be back in two minutes. Welcome back to the program. Uh, live radio, just when I said we have all of our problems solved, or I thought we had them solved. Well, guess what? We didn't have them solved. So we are back. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And you're listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. And we are here to take your live calls and questions as we begin the second half of the program. Let me give you phone numbers, and then we'll be uh, get right to questions. 340-9585 for your local calls. Toll free, you can call at 877 877- 6305757 Here is an anonymous question uh, Pastor Ron I saw a YouTube video about a pastor named Danny Cortez who changed his view on homosexuality I know he was Southern Baptist are SBC pastors changing their mind on this issue uh, anonymous no SBC pastors are not changing their mind SBC is a Southern Baptist convention uh, I have uh, I watched only a few minutes of the Danny Cortez video I couldn't stand anymore but but uh, this is an example of of a man who publicly and for some length of time held a uh, an orthodox view of uh, sin and sexuality and taught it 
Um, but his own son came out as gay, and he decided that he needed to love his son, and he let circumstances and emotions change what he knows about truth. Now, I want to say a couple of things about this, because it's, it's, it, it, this is an issue that's not ever going to go away. And we're going to find more of these people that we thought were formerly orthodox in their uh, doctrine uh, who are going to be changing sides. Last week we had questions and phone calls about the Eugene Peterson controversy. Uh, it's really important as Christians. Uh, if, if I could be the czar of the world, the Christian world for a moment, I would say remember what's true. If it was true a year ago, if it was true 2,000 years ago, it's true today. Truth doesn't change because God doesn't change. And there's going to be this relentless pressure to conform to the ways of this world. And that pressure is going to demand that we make choices. And too many people are making the emotional choice rather than the loving choice. The real tragedy, Anonymous, is that they're making the choice, uh, the emotional choice, thinking it's the choice of love or thinking it's the way of love. Well, unless we accept them, unless we love them, then then they're going to think we're haters. They don't want to be thought of as being uh, haters, so they, they, they cave in. Hold on to what you know. Hold on to what you know. My heart was really hurting when I started to listen to this. In fact, so much so that I said I could only listen to a few minutes of it. I got past about the first seven or eight minutes of it where he was making his case and then he went to explain on to explain uh, sort of uh, the, the, the history behind that choice. Um, and all I could think was the enemy won again. You know, how can we accept or say we love somebody when we affirm, not accept, but affirm a lifestyle that the Bible says people who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. So this is one Southern Baptist pastor who is no longer Southern Baptist. Um, this is not an indication that the, the Southern Baptists are, are making a change uh, in direction uh, about this issue. It's just one man who's been picked off by an enemy in the name of love. And after all, it's my own son, so how can I not love my son? The best way you can love your children, and uh, moms and dads, this is something that your children are going to face. There are going to be a lot of Christian parents whose kids come home from school and say, uh, I'm gay. And we're going to have to say, we stand in this house for Jesus. We're going to have to tell them what they've decided is wrong. It's a sin against God. And we're going to have to do that in spite of the fact that they call us names and say we're unloving. Because we've decided to love Jesus. And to love Him, we've got to agree with Him. I said that in the program yesterday. Christian has to agree with Christ. And the Lord's views on this kind of um, sexual sin uh, is well known. So it's very important that we understand that and hold on to what we know. Never abandon what you're not sure about for something you're sure of and never be led by your emotions. Now, in saying this, Anonymous, I don't mean we have to be mean or unkind, but the world would categorize us saying that what they're doing is wrong, is, is unloving and unkind. Nothing could be farther from the truth. We have to treat this sin like every other sin. If you live like this, you'll not inherit the kingdom of God. And since I want you to be in heaven, I have to tell you what's right, and I have to tell you what's wrong. 
And now Christians, so-called Christians, are falling like flies. And it's going to pick up speed. I said years ago, this is going to be the defining issue, the issue that really determines whether or not we're on Jesus' side or the world's side. And it's proving to be that and much, much more. So we've got to be able to tell people the truth in love, not worrying about what the world says. Yet people are still going to keep changing their minds. So I hope that answers your question. Pray for Danny Cortez. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Joe. He said, I'm sorry, from John. Forgive me, John. By the way, I'm just thinking about this. I was praying for uh, John from Casterville today. John, uh, regular listener to the program. If you're listening today, I would really appreciate uh, an email uh, just letting me know you're okay. Appreciate it. Now, this is a different John. The Bible says we need to believe and confess Jesus and we're saved. If a gay person believes in Jesus, will he or she be saved because of grace? John, the answer is no, not if they're a practicing homosexual. Now, you can have same-sex attraction. Just like men are attracted to women, women are attracted to men. If they're not married, they need to control that attraction. Um, If you have same-sex attraction and don't act on it because you're born again, because you believe in Jesus, well, of course you'll be saved. Grace is God's unmerited favor. So to have a same-sex attraction is different than to willfully sin sexually. You know, one of the problems with this issue, John, and I talked about it a moment ago with the other question, is that the agenda for uh, the homosexuals in, in the world today is to get Christians to stop saying what they're doing is sin. This is who I am. This is the way I live. It's sin. Um, they don't want to be told that they're in sin. They want to be justified. They want to be validated. And that's no different than the rest of us. Uh, over the last few weeks, we've had people repeatedly coming to us with this issue of marijuana. Well, now that it's legal and since everything that God made was good, it's a natural herb, uh, it's okay, right? No, it's not okay. They want me to say it's okay because they know what they're doing is wrong and they don't want to have to deal with it. They don't want, They just want to keep doing it. And so it makes them comfortable. We say, no, it's okay to do it. Well, the same thing is true for homosexuality. They're living the life that they want to live. They want to be told it's okay. We wouldn't do that with any other sin, would we? We wouldn't do that with a burglar. Oh, it's okay to go keep robbing houses. It's, it's okay. We wouldn't do that with a drug addict or an alcoholic. Oh, it's okay. Go ahead and kill yourself. We wouldn't do that. We do it with the sin because of the enormous social pressure. Now, John, when the Bible says we need to believe, it's not just believe and confess. It's believe in our heart. And then because of that, confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. That's what we have to believe. We have to believe that's not intellectual assent about who he was or what he was. It's a belief that changes who you are in the very core of your being. So it's not just, yeah, I believe. I've had people tell me that all the time. I had a guy tell me, I believe in Jesus, so I'm saved, while he's leaving his wife and children for somebody else. That's not a Christian who can do something like that. If he or she is a Christian, in an instance like that, then there's going to be torment over their sin. But we live in a time, John, when someone who is homosexual 
makes these choices all the time professing to belong to Christ. They're living a lifestyle that contradicts that profession. So pray for them. Tell them the truth in love. If you're ready to get shot at, I mean that in a figurative sense, you will. But we have to tell them the truth. Jesus said we're to be salt and light. And I always think of salt, you know, a purifying agent. If if the church turns and says all of this behavior is okay, there's no more salt in the world. There's no more purifying agent. We're that purifying agent. This may be the impetus to the great falling away or the great apostasy, where people simply turn away from God and no longer care what he thinks. We're living in those days. To be saved, you have to believe in the real Jesus Jesus demands that we come to him on his terms. So if anyone can sin and sin without the conviction of the Holy Spirit, can sin without torment, they can sin without hating it, well, John, they really haven't met Jesus at all. So it's not just saying it or intellectually saying, I believe it. If you really believe then Jesus will change you. And the truth is, you'll no longer be comfortable doing the things that you're doing. So, I hope that helps a little bit, John. Hard questions, and remember, we're going to keep getting these questions because we keep dealing with these things in ever-increasing measure continually. Here's a question from Max. Did Eve have sex with the serpent in the garden? Max stopped listening to Arnold Murray. Guy's a, a nut, a false teacher, a heretic, um, still being played on radio stations in this country. I think he's dead. Um, not sure of that, but I think he is. But stop listening to him. He has nothing of value to offer. The answer to your question is no. The sin in the Garden of Eden, the original sin was eating from the tree of the fruit of good and or eating from the the, the tree with the fruit of, of the knowledge of good and evil that was the original sin and the idea that she had sex with the serpent in the garden and that's why she ate uh, from the tree is uh, is uh, blasphemous so um, stop listening to Arnold Murray Shepherd's Chapel I think is out of Arkansas Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Here is a question from Greg that interests me. I'm a pastor. Uh, he said, "How big is too big for a church?" Um, and then he comments, "I think churches should be small enough to know everyone, and that everyone should know their pastor." Greg, I wish it would be that way, but here's the thing that we have to understand: uh, the church isn't ours. The church is God's. And the church doesn't belong to you. God doesn't ask you how big the church should or shouldn't be. Um, God is going to do the work he's going to do in a church. And the thing is, there's churches of all sizes. If you're one of those people that's uncomfortable in a huge place, don't go. Uh, they're, they're really, really small churches with faithful pastors teaching. Uh, and you'll be blessed and you'll be able to get to know everybody uh, on a more intimate basis including your pastor and, and your pastor's wife. Um, 
here's the thing. We, we, I've told this story before, but we, our first Bible study was May 25th, um, 1995. I'm sorry, May 31st, 1995. We had 13 people show up. We were meeting in a recreation center apartment complex. It was the biggest crowd we had for two years. Well, God was working on me at that time working on me and Paula, knitting our hearts together in the ministry. When people started coming, we had no control over who was coming. You know, in our 22 years here at Calvary Chapel, Greg, we've never spent a a dime, not one dime, nor have we spent one minute trying to figure out how to make our church grow. We get all these things in the mail all the time. Every church does about how to grow your church and church marketing strategy. We've never done any of that stuff. Here's what we do. I show up every time we're open, whether it's a Wednesday night for me or a Friday night for me or three services on Sunday. And whoever shows up, if it was one or 10,001, whoever shows up, I open the Bible and I teach it. And when we do that faithfully enough, then God can trust us with people, and he'll start bringing people. And our church, you'd come and you'd say, you'd look at it, and you'd say, it's too big, it's too crowded. The building itself is really small, but we get so many people in here every week. Now, what am I going to do? Stand at the door and tell them, oh, our church is too big now, you can't come. These are the people that the Lord is bringing. It's very, very important. And you, and whatever your church is, You need to be about winning people to Christ, inviting more people, not fewer people, to church. It is a dangerous, dangerous thing uh, when, in fact, um, we stop people from coming because we're uncomfortable. Let God do what he's going to do. Let's go to Anthony on line three, calling from San Antonio. Anthony, thanks for holding. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. Uh, Actually, this is Anthony from Seguin. I don't know if you remember speaking. I do remember, Anthony. Well, our, our worship to, leader. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I want to try to make this quick. Uh, I, I'm, 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 my diagnosis. I don't know if you remember. I had spinal stenosis. Yes, I do. And I had a, I had a tumor that exploded in my stomach and all that. And it's my spinal stenosis has gotten worse. Uh, my pain in my back has gotten uh, uh, way, way worse to where. Uh, sometimes I fall. I've broken my ankle. I've fractured my wrist because I've fallen. Mm. My question is this. My question is this. I believe God can heal me. I know God can heal me. Um, I've never once asked him why he hasn't healed me, nor will I heal me, Well, will, or nor will he heal me. Um, I accept whatever happens. question is... You know, how do I deal with the depression that wants to come and set in um, when I can't hardly move and, and all I do is sleep because I'm in so much pain? Yeah. I mean, I've had people tell me, why Why do you serve God if he hasn't healed you? Why do you still go and minister, you know, to song and, and all that if God hasn't healed you? Why do you do all that? You know, and I simply tell them because I need to. Um, now the question, like I said, is how do I deal with the depression that, that I don't want to confess and say, yeah, I have depression, but yeah. I mean, I sleep a lot. And my doctor says yeah. that it's just because of the pain from my body. Yeah. So if he could answer that, I could hang up and listen to it. Okay. 
Anthony, as you hang up, I'm going to pray for you before I answer the question, okay? It's really uh, on my heart. Father, we, we lift Anthony to you, and um, Anthony is one of your gifted ones. Um, how I wish I could do music, how I wish I could sing, and I can't. But you've given the gift to Anthony, and we pray, Father, that you would continue to use him for your glory. We do ask God for miraculous healing. Um, you know, it, it, it appears as though that is not your will for Anthony for one reason or another. Um, but God, we know that your grace is sufficient. So I'm asking you to surround Anthony, um, surround him with your love, draw near to him, invite him to draw ever nearer to you. And may he stand in the strength of the Lord, even when he has no strength of his own. Father, we pray against this depression. We pray against an enemy who would take this opportunity to devour. Give him strength, Lord. In your presence is fullness of joy. That's what we claim for Anthony. Amen. Anthony, I'm going to take a little bit of time in answering your question. It's important. When somebody asks you, why do you do it when God hasn't healed you? You say, because he rescued me from hell. He died for my sins. He gave me his righteousness. Um, the other thing is, it's, it's childish in terms of faith. When people expect God is going to heal. You know, we all hypothetically know that God can do anything. But, but we live in a fallen world filled with suffering. And the normal course of things is that he doesn't intervene. He doesn't heal. He didn't heal the Apostle Paul when the Apostle Paul three times pleaded with him for relief from his affliction, the thorn in the flesh. So it's really important that we understand perspective from heaven. He's using this for his glory. I, I, let me recommend uh, Johnny Erickson Tata's biography to you. Um, just Google her name. Johnny is J-O-N-I. Last name is T-A-D-A, Johnny Erickson Tata. Uh, and and uh, her, her situation, not to compare pain, but hers, um, um, so, so difficult. Um, she is an inspiration, a heroine to all of us. So uh, that will help you. Now, specifically, Anthony, how to deal with the depression. Well, you got to be tough. Honestly, you got to be tough. The enemy is going to do everything he can to keep you in bed, to keep you asleep. But in those instances where he's sort of prevailing, um, nobody's being touched by the gift that God has given you. Um, David endured 10 years of being chased by Saul in the caves. Um, Joseph endured unfair imprisonments. And he found favor wherever he was in those circumstances. Favor from God. You too can find favor from the Lord. Try to focus less on your pain, and I say that knowing that that's a very, very difficult thing to do, but God will help you. Stop focusing on your condition and instead focus more on the person of Jesus Christ. Anthony, these are times that you can really dive in. Open your Bible. Let God into your heart at a level sharing in the fellowship of Jesus' sufferings where you can become more like him than ever before. So it's all about the discipline to get up, get a shower, practice your music, open your Bible, and pray. And every day, God's grace will meet you. 
every day. If you look at the totality of a life, it's maybe overwhelming at times. But one thing you'll learn from Johnny Erickson Tata is it's just every day finding Jesus, every day finding his plan. And when David says, the joy of the Lord is my strength, that's Nehemiah rather, and then David says, in his presence is the fullness of joy. Every day for you is going to be a battle. Now, having just come off surgery myself, going through pain I haven't ever experienced before, I know how hard this is. But God, he's with you. Anthony, I will be praying for you. Please keep us posted. Thank you very, very much. Uh, Here is a question that was just sent in from a caller anonymously. If God created one man and one woman, why are there so many different races? Where did they come from? Um, Go to the table of nations in Genesis chapter 10 and 11, the the Tower of Babel. God had to scatter people to distant languages or to distant lands uh, and then sort of uh, just uh, uh, DNA uh, people being uh, separated and, and breeding amongst themselves, uh, people began to look just like everybody else. So uh, it's Genesis chapter 10 and 11. That's where they came from. That's why there are many different races. Uh, when God confused their language, they had to scatter to places uh, where they could be understood by others. And that meant people groups began to form. Nations, the Greek word is ethnos, uh, began to form. And that's continued forever and ever and ever. At the, in the beginning, with a perfect DNA pool, a perfect gene pool, there was no difficulty. But, but when people started to separate and they started to reproduce, then they began to look more and more like they were. They began to adapt to their environment. And that's where we get not only the different races, the different languages, uh, different perspectives on life and on God. Um, people groups formed, and that's where they were. So, Anonymous, I hope that answers your question. Let's see if I have time. Nope, I don't have time. I thought I had time for one more question, but I don't. Hey, thanks for putting up with the technical difficulties that we had. I hope most of the program came through. I heard that my voice was coming in and out. Uh, We'll get those problems fixed for the program tomorrow. You've been listening to the Word to Stand On for Life. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 on AM 630, The Word. See Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.